Chapter Twenty of When Knighthood Was in Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. When Knighthood Was in Flower by Charles Major. Chapter Twenty. Down into France. So it came to pass that Mary was married unto Louis, and went down into France. Again, the editor takes the liberty of substituting Hall's quaint account of Mary's journey to France. Then, when all things were ready for the continuance of this noble lady, the king her brother, in the month of August, and the fifteenth day, with the queen his wife, and his said sister, and all the court, came to Dover, and there tarried, for the wind was troublous, and the weather foul, insomuch that ship of the king's called the Liebeck, of nine hundred ton, was driven ashore before Sandgate, and there brays, and of seven hundred men, scantly escaped three hundred, and yet the most part of them were hurt with the wreck. When the weather was fair, then all her wardrobe, stable, and riches was shipped, and such as were appointed to give their attendance on her as the Duke of Norfolk, the Marquis of Dorset, the Bishop of Durham, the Earl of Surrey, the Lord Delaware, Sir Thomas Boyen, and many other knights, squires, gentlemen, and ladies. All these went to ship, and the said lady took her leave of the queen in the castle of Dover, and the king brought her to the seaside, and kissed her, and betook her to God, and the fortune of the sea, and to the governance of the French king her husband. Thus, at the hour of four o'clock in the morning, this fair lady took her ship with all her noble company, and when they had sailed a quarter of the sea, the wind rose and severed some of the ships to Calais, and some in Flanders, and her ship with great difficulty to Bouillon, and with great jeopardy at the entry of the haven, for the master ran the ship hard on shore. But the boats were ready, and rescued this noble lady, and at the landing Sir Christopher Garnisha stood in the water, and took her in his arms, and so carried her to land where the Duke of Vandesome and a cardinal with many estates rescued her, and her ladies, and welcomed all the noblemen into the country. And so the queen and all her train came to Bouillon, and there rested, and from thence she removed by diverse lodgings till she came almost within three miles of Abbeville, beside the forest of Ardors, and there King Louis, upon a great corsair, met her, which he so long desired, but she took her way right on, not stopping to converse. Then he returned to Abbeville by a secret way, and she with great triumph, procession, and pageantries, received into the town of Abbeville, the eighth day of October, by the dolphin, which received her with great honour. She was apparelled in cloth of silver, her horse was trapped in goldsmith's work very richly. After her followed thirty-six ladies, all their palfreys trapped with crimson velvet, embroidered. After followed one chariot of cloth of tissue, the second cloth of gold, the third crimson velvet embroidered with the king's arms and hers, full of roses. After them followed a great number of archers, and then wagons laden with their stuff. Great was the riches in plate, jewels, money, hangings, that this lady brought into France. The Monday, being the day of St. Denis, the same King Louis married the Lady Mary in the great church of Abbeville, both apparelled in goldsmith's work. 
After the mass was done, there was a great banquet, and feast, and the ladies of England highly entertained. The Tuesday being the tenth day of October, all the Englishmen except a few war officers with the said queen were discharged, which was a great sorrow for them, for some had served her long in the hope of preferment, and some that had honest roams left them to serve her, and now they were out of service, which caused thee to take thought in so much, some died by the way returning, and some fell mad, but there was no remedy. After the English lords had done their commission, the French king willed thee to take no longer pain, and so gave them good rewards, and they took their leave of the queen and returned. Then the dolphin of France, called Francis Duke of Olay, or Francis de Angoulême, caused a solemn justice to be proclaimed, which should be kept in Paris in the month of November next ensuing, and while all these things were preparing, the Lady Mary, the fifth day of November, then being Sunday, was with great solemnity crowned Queen of France in the monastery of St. Denis, and the Lord Dolphin, who was young but very toward, all the season held the crown over her head, because it was of great weight to her grievance. Madame Mary took her time, since a more deliberate journey bride never made to waiting bridegroom. She was a study during this whole period, weeping and angry by turns. She, who had never known a moment's illness in all her days, took to her bed upon two occasions from sheer antipathetic nervousness, and would rest her head upon Jane's breast, and cry out little, half-articulate prayers to God that she might not kill the man who was her husband when they should meet. When we met the king about a league this side of Abbeville, and when Mary beheld him with the shadow of death upon his brow, she took hope, for she knew he would be but putty in her hands, so manifestly weak was he, mentally and physically. As he came up she whipped her horse and rode by him at a gallop, sending me back with word that he must not be so ardent, that he frightened her, poor, timid little thing, so afraid of nothing in the world. This shocked the French courtiers, and one would think would have offended Louis, but he simply grinned from ear to ear, showing his yellow fangs, and said whimperingly, Oh, the game is worth the trouble. Tell Her Majesty I wait at Abbeville. The old king had ridden a horse to meet his bride in order that he might appear more gallant before her, but a litter was waiting to take him back to Abbeville by a shorter route, and they were married again in person. Again a quotation from Hall is substituted. Monday, the sixth day of November, there the said queen was received into the city of Paris, after the order that followeth. First the guard of the city met her without St. Denise, all in coats of goldsmith's work, with ship's gilt, and after them met her all the priests and religious, which were esteemed to be three thousand. The queen was in a chire covered about, but not her overperson, in white cloth of gold. The horses that drew it, covered in cloth of gold, on her bed a coronal, all of great pearls, her neck and breast full of jewels. Before her went a guard of almoniers, after their fashion, and after them all noblemen, as the Dolphin, the Duke of Bourbon, cardinals, and a great number of estates. About her person rode the king's guard, the which were Scots. On the morrow began the justies, and the queen stood so that all men might see her, and wonder at her beauty, and the king was feeble, and lay on a couch for weakness.
So Mary was twice married to Louis, and, although she was his queen fast and sure enough, she was not his wife. You may say what you will, but I like a fighting woman, one with a touch of savage in her when the occasion arises, one who can fight for what she loves as well as against what she hates. She usually loves as she fights with all her heart. So Mary was crowned, and was now a queen, hedged about by the tinseled divinity that hedgeth royalty. It seemed that she was climbing higher and higher all the time from Brandon, but in her heart every day she was brought nearer to him. There was one thing that troubled her greatly, and all the time. Henry had given his word that Brandon should be liberated as soon as Mary had left the shores of England, but we had heard nothing of this matter, although we had received several letters from home. A doubt of her brother, in whom she had little faith at best, made her ache at her heart, which seemed at times likely to break it, so she said. One night she dreamed that she had witnessed Brandon's execution, her brother standing by in excellent humor at the prank he was playing on her, and it so worked upon her waking hours that by evening she was ill. At last I received a letter from Brandon, which had been delayed along the road, containing one for Mary. It told of his full pardon and restoration to favor, greater even than before, and her joy was so sweet and quiet, and yet so softly delirious, that I tell you plainly it brought tears to my eyes, and I could not hold them back. The marriage, when once determined upon, had not cast her down nearly so deep as I had expected, and soon she grew to be quite cheerful and happy. This filled me with regret, for I thought of how Brandon must suffer, and feel that her heart was a poor, flimsy thing to take trouble so lightly. I spoke to Jane about it, but she only laughed. "'Mary is all right,' said she. "'Do not fear. Matters will turn out better than you think, perhaps. You know she generally manages to have her own way in the end.' If you have any comfort to give, please give it, Jane. I feel most keenly for Brandon, heart tied to such a willful, changeable creature as Mary. Sir Edwin Caskendale, you need not take the trouble to speak to me at all unless you can lose language more respectful concerning my mistress. The Queen knows what she is about, but it appears that you cannot see it. I see it plain enough, although no word has ever been spoken to me on the subject. As to Brandon being tied to her, it seems to me she is tied to him, and that he holds the reins. He could have driven her into the mouth of purgatory. Do you think so? I know it. I remained in thought a moment or two, and concluded that she was right. In truth, the time had come to me when I believed that Jane, with her good sense and acute discernment, could not be wrong in anything, and I think so yet. So I took comfort on faith from her, and asked— do you remember what you said should happen before we returned to England? Jane hung her head. I remember. Well? She then put her hand in mine and murmured, I am ready any time you wish. Good heaven! I thought I should go out of my senses. She should have told me gradually. I had to do something to express my exultation, so I walked over to a bronze statue of Bacchus, about my size, that is, height, put my hat, which I had been carrying under my arm, on his head, cut a few capers in an entirely new and equally antic step, and then drew back and knocked that Bacchus down. Jane thought I had gone stark mad, and her eyes grew big with wonder. But I walked proudly back to her after my victory over Bacchus, and reassured her, with a few of Mary's messages, that I had still left over, if the truth must be told. 
Then we made arrangements that resulted in our marriage next morning. Accordingly, Queen Mary and one or two others went with us down to a little church where, as fortune would have it, there was a little priest ready to join together in the holy bonds of wedlock, little Jane and little me. Everything so appropriate, you see. I suppose in the whole world we couldn't have found another set of conditions so harmonious. Mary laughed and cried and laughed again and clapped her hands over and over and said it was like a play-wedding and, as she kissed Jane, quietly slipped over her head a beautiful diamond necklace that was worth a full ten thousand pounds, aside, that is, from the millions of actual value, because it came from Mary. A play-wedding it was, and a play-life it has been ever since. We were barely settled at court in Paris, when Mary began to put her plans into motion and unsettle things generally. I could but recall Henry's sympathy toward Louis, for the young queen soon took it upon herself to make life a burden for the father of his people, and, in that particular line, I suppose she had no equal in all the length and breadth of Christendom. I heartily detested King Louis, largely, I think, because of prejudice absorbed from Mary. But he was, in fact, a fairly good old man, and at times I could but pity him. He was always soft in heart, and softer in head, especially where women were concerned. Take his crazy attempt to seize the Countess of Croy while he was yet Duke of Orleans, and his infatuation for the Italian woman, for whom he built the elaborate burial vault, much it must have comforted her. Then his marriage to the dictatorial little Anne of Brittany, for whom he had induced Pope Alexander to divorce him from the poor little crippled owlet, Joan. In consideration of this divorce, he had put Caesar Borgia, Pope Alexander's son, on his feet, financially and politically. I think he must have wanted the owlet back again before he was done with Anne, because Anne was a termagant, and ruled him with the heaviest rod of iron she could lift. But this last passion, the flickering sputtering flame of his dotage, was the worst of all, both subjectively and objectively, both as to his senile fondness for the English princess and her impish tormenting of him. From the first he evinced the most violent delight in Mary, who repaid it by holding him off and evading him in a manner so cool, audacious, and adroit, that it stamped her queen of all the arts feminine and demonic. Pardon me, ladies, if I couple these two arts, but you must admit they are at times somewhat akin. Soon she eluded him so completely that for days he would not have a glimpse of her, while she was perhaps riding, walking, or coquetting with some of the court gallants, who aided and abetted her in every way they could. He became almost frantic in pursuit of his elusive bride, and would expostulate with her, when he could catch her, and smile uneasily, like a man who is the victim of a practical joke of which he does not see or enjoy the point. On such occasions she would laugh in his face, then grow angry, which was so easy for her to do, and, I grieve to say, would sometimes almost swear at him in a manner to make the pious, though oft-times lax-virtued, court ladies shudder with honour. She would at other times make sport of his youthful ardour, and tell him in all seriousness that it was indecorous for him to behave so and frighten her, a poor, timid little child, with his impetuosities. Then she would manage to give him the slip, and he would go off and play a game of cards with her, firmly convinced in his own feeble way that women's nature had a tincture of the devil in it. He was the soul of conciliatory kindness to the young vixen, 
but at times she would break violently into tears, accuse him of cruelly mistreating her, a helpless woman and a stranger in his court, and threaten to go home to dear old England and tell her brother, King Henry, all about it, and have him put things right and redress her wrongs generally. In fact, she acted the part of injured innocence so perfectly that the poor old man would apologize for the wrong she invented and try to coax her into a good humor. Thereupon she would weep more bitterly than ever, grow hysterical, and require to be carried off by her women, when recovery and composure were usually instantaneous. Of course the court gossips soon carried stories of the quick recoveries to the king, and, when he spoke to Mary of them, she put on her injured air again, and turned the tables by upbraiding him for believing such calumnies about her, who was so good to him and loved him so dearly. I tell you, it is a waste of time to fight against that assumption of injured innocence, that impregnable female redoubt, and when the enemy once gets fairly behind it, one might as well raise the siege. I think it the most amusing, exasperating, and successful defense and counter-attack in the whole science of war, and every woman has it at her fingertips, ready for immediate use upon occasion. Mary would often pout for days together and pretend illness. Upon one occasion she kept the king waiting at her door all the morning, while she, having slipped through the window, was riding with some of the young people in the forest. When she returned, through the window, she went to the door and scolded the poor old king for keeping her waiting penned up in her room all morning, and he apologized. She changed the dinner hour to noon in accordance with the English custom, and had a heavy supper at night, when she would make the king gorge himself with unhealthful food and coax him to drink as much as Brother Henry, which invariably resulted in Louis de Valot finding lodgment under the table. This amused the whole court, except the few old cronies and physicians who, of course, were scandalized beyond measure. She took the king on long rides with her on cold days, and would jolt him almost to death, and freeze him until the cold tears streamed down his poor pinched nose, making him feel like a half-animated icicle, and wish that he were one, in fact. At night she would have her balls, and keep him up till morning drinking and dancing, or trying to dance, with her, until his poor old heels, and his head, too, for that matter, were like to fall off. Then she would slip away from him, and lock herself in her room. December, I say, let May alone. She certainly will kill you. Despite which sound advice, I doubt not December will go on coveting May up till the end of the chapter. Each old fellow, being such a fine man for his age, you understand, fondly believing himself an exception. Age in a fool is damnable. Mary was killing Louis as certainly and deliberately as if she were feeding him slow poison. He was very weak and decrepit at best, being compelled frequently upon public occasions such, for example, as the coronation tournament of which I have spoken, to lie upon a couch. Mary's conduct was really cruel. But then, remember her provocation, and that she was acting in self-defense. All this was easier for her than you might suppose, for the king's grasp of power, never very strong, was beginning to relax what little grip it had. All faces were turned toward the rising sun, young Francis, Duke of Angoulême, the king's distant cousin, who would soon be king in Louis's place, and this young rising sun, himself vastly smitten with Mary, openly encouraged her in what she did. The courtiers, of course, followed suit, and the old king found himself surrounded by a court only too ready to be amused by his lively young queen at his expense. This condition of affairs Mary welcomed with her whole soul, 
and to accent it and nail assurance, I fear, played ever so lightly and coyly upon the heartstrings of the young duke, which responded all too loudly to her velvet touch, and almost frightened her to death with their volume and sound later on. This Francis de Angouleme, the dauphin, had fallen desperately in love with Mary at first sight, something against which the fact that he was married to Claude, daughter of Louis, in no way militated. He was a very distant relative of Louis, going away back to St. Louis for his heirship of the French crown. The king had daughters in plenty, but as you know, gallant Frenchmen say, according to their law Salic, the realm of France is so great and glorious a heritage that it may not be taken by a woman. Too great and glorious to be taken by a woman, forsooth. France would have been vastly better off had she been governed by a woman now and then, for a country always prospers under a queen. Francis had for many years lived at court as the recognized heir, and as the custom was, called his distant cousin Louis Uncle. Uncle Louis in turn called Francis Segregation, and Queen Mary called him Monsieur Montbelfil. Monsieur Montbelfil, in a mock motherly manner that was very laughable. A mother of eighteen to a good boy of twenty. Dangerous relationship. And dangerous indeed it would have been for Mary, had she not been as pure and true as she was willful and impetuous. Montbelfil allowed neither his wife nor the respect he owed the king to stand in the way of his very marked attention to the queen. His position as heir, and his long residence at court, almost as son to Louis, gave him ample opportunities for pressing his unseemly suit. He was the first to see Mary at the meeting-place this side of Abbeville, and was the king's representative on all occasions. Beaufil was a rather handsome fellow, but thought himself vastly handsomer than he was, and had some talents, which he was likewise careful to estimate at their full value, to say the least. He was very well liked by women, and in turn considered himself irresistible. He was very impressionable to female charms, was at heart a libertine, and, as he grew older, became a debauchee, whose memory will taint France for centuries to come. Mary saw his weakness more clearly than his wickedness, being blinded to the latter by the veil of her own innocence. She laughed at, and with him, and permitted herself a great deal of his company, so much, in fact, that I grew jealous for Brandon's sake, and, if the truth must be told, for the first time began to have doubts of her. I seriously feared that when Louis should die, Brandon might find a much more dangerous rival in the new king, who, although married, would probably try to keep Mary at his court, even should he be driven to the extreme of divorcing Claude, as Claude's father had divorced Joan. I believed, in case Mary should voluntarily prove false and remain in France, either as the wife or mistress of Francis, that Brandon would quietly but surely contrive some means to take her life, and I hoped that he would. I spoke to my wife, Jane, about the Queen's conduct, and she finally admitted that she did not like it. So I, unable to remain silent any longer, determined to put Mary on her guard, and for that purpose spoke very freely to her on the subject. "'Oh, you goose!' she said laughingly. "'He is almost as great a fool as Henry.' Then the tears came to her eyes, and half angrily, half hysterically, shaking me by the arm, she continued, "'Do you not know? Can you not see that I would give this hand, or my eyes, almost my life, just to fall upon my face in front of Charles Brandon at this moment? Do you not know that a woman with a love in her heart such as I have for him 
is safe from every one and every thing, that it is her sheet-anchor, sure and fast? Have you not wit enough to know that? Yes, I have, I responded, for the time completely silenced. With her favorite tactics, she had, as usual, put me in the wrong, though I soon came again to the attack. But he is so base that I grieve to see you with him. I suppose he is not very good, she responded, but it seems to be the way of these people among whom I have fallen, and he cannot harm me. Oh, but he can. One does not go near smallpox, and there is moral contagion quite as dangerous, if not so perceptible, and equally to be avoided. It must be a wonderfully healthy moral nature, pure and chaste to the core, that will be entirely contagion-proof and safe from it. She hung her head in thought, and then lifted her eyes appealingly to me. Am I not that, Edwin? Tell me. Tell me frankly. Am I not? It is the one thing of good I have always striven for. I am so full of other faults that if I have not that, there is no good in me. Her eyes and voice were full of tears, and I knew in my heart that I stood before as pure a soul as ever came from the hand of God. "'You are, Your Majesty, never doubt,' I answered. "'It is preeminently the one thing in womanhood to which all mankind kneels.' And I fell upon my knee and kissed her hand with a sense of reverence, faith, and trust that has never left me from that day to this. As to my estimate of how Francis would act when Louis should die, you will see that I was right. Not long after this, Lady Caskoden and I were given permission to return to England, and immediately prepared for our homeward journey. Ah, it was pretty to see Jane bustling about, making ready for our departure, superintending the packing of our boxes, and also superintending me. That was her great task. I never was so thankful for riches as when they enabled me to allow Jane full sway among the pair shops. But at last— all the fine things being packed, and Mary having kissed us both—mind you, both—we got our little retinue together, and we went out, through St. Denis, then ho, for dear old England. As we left, Mary placed in my hands a letter for Brandon, whose bulk was so reassuring that I knew he had never been out of her thoughts. I looked at the letter a moment and said, in all seriousness, Your Majesty, had I not better provide an extra box for it? She gave a nervous little laugh, and the tears filled her eyes, as she whispered huskily, "'I fancy there is one who will not think it too large. "'Good-bye. "'Good-bye!' So we left Mary, fair, sweet girl-queen, all alone among those terrible strangers, alone with one little English maiden, seven years of age, Anne Boleyn. End of chapter 20